morning and Merry Christmas. Don't you love it when Christmas falls on a Sunday? It's good. I was telling my wife it's difficult when Christmas falls on a Sunday because it breaks you out of your normal Christmas routine, but I came up with a solution for how we could fix that. We could have church every year on Christmas, regardless of which day it falls on. And I would be there, and nobody else would be there. (laughs) But it'd be a good tradition. So we love our Christmas traditions, right? Most of our traditions are celebrated with friends or family or our churches. And there are not too many Christmas traditions that are solitary pursuits, things that you do by yourself. But I have one, a Christmas tradition that I keep to myself and don't share with others. Something I do every year around Christmas that nobody else I know seems to enjoy, so I don't subject them to this. I try not to even expose my family to this, but every December for the last 13 years when I'm driving alone or sitting in a room by myself, I sometimes like to listen to Bob Dylan's 2009 Christmas album, Christmas in the Heart. Sam doesn't like it. (laughs) But I like this. And this may be the most controversial Christmas opinion that I hold. But I think that the album is good. And I actually like it. It's among the best Christmas albums released this century. And now, as you know, many people never cared for Bob Dylan's voice. Even in his earlier work. I always thought it was well suited to what he did. But a lot of people find it whiny and, and grating. But by 2009, a 68-year-old Bob Dylan with decades of smoking and who knows what else under his belt did not, by any stretch of the imagination, have a pleasant voice. It was decidedly unpleasant. And so he decided to do what anyone would do in that situation. He recorded a Christmas album in the style of the classic old crooners, like Sinatra or Bing or Perry Como, Nat King Cole, with these classic arrangements, angelic-sounding background singers, with an elderly Bob Dylan struggling and straining to eke out familiar Christmas tunes over the top of them. It is a bizarre album, and many people hate it. I was reading online reviews of it. Here's some of the comments I read. This is an album that could be used to interrogate detainees at Guantanamo Bay. (laughs) Or awful, it sounds like my cat in heat. (laughs) Literally the worst thing I've ever heard. This Christmas album is the perfect example of when musicians should retire. It sounds as if he's been gargling with razor blades. If forced to sit through it again, I might have to hang myself by the chimney with care. It sounds like he's singing through a tracheotomy. Everyone involved in this monstrosity should be jailed for assault. It sounds like a cross between Joe Cocker and a chainsaw. It's enough to make the most devout Christian consider atheism. I'm giving this album two stars, one for each of Bob's tar-filled lungs. He sounds like Swamp Thing with a cold. At one point, there was so much phlegm in his voice, it actually made me physically ill. It sounds like he's croaking through the broken end of a Coke bottle. And finally, this is the worst thing to happen to ears since Van Gogh. 
So not everybody loves the album. <laughs> and it's a bit jarring to listen to, I will admit. I can't listen to it myself without feeling like I need to clear my throat every few verses. But I will tell you why I like it. What I like about it is the level of contrast that exists in this album. On the one hand, you have these pitch-perfect, crisp, clean studio renditions of classic-sounding Christmas carols and hymns with lovely background vocals. And on the other hand, you have what sounds like a dying old man warbling over the top of it. You have the heavenly and the earthly. You have the sacred and the mundane, the beautiful and the dreadful, the magnificent and the ordinary. And what is Christmas if not the coming together of these two things, if not a great contrast. The Son of God, the very picture of divine perfection inhabiting a cattle trough. Glorious angels in the sky speaking to despised shepherds on the ground. The Savior of the world born to two ordinary Jewish peasants. The heavenly and the earthly come together for us and for our salvation. It's the beauty of Christmas. The beauty is in the contrast. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see those two things contrasted in a stark and powerful way, and we're going to be challenged by it. If we hear the word of God today, we will be challenged to know the truth about Jesus Christ so deeply that it becomes a very part of us and seeps into every inch of our being. We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and though we would often break from our series for Christmas, we're not doing that today. We're going to stay in Philippians because our passage will be well-suited to our thoughts this day. But the last couple of weeks, we have seen Paul turn his attention in this letter toward the Philippian church, and he's been instructing them toward unity, right? He wanted them to cooperate, to love one another, to get along uh, to stand firm together, to work for the gospel, all of that sort of stuff. He wanted there to be unity in the church. This is his main appeal in the book. And he uh, appealed to the gospel as the grounds for this unity. He said that their belief in the gospel should spill over into how they live and treat one another. And in our passage today, he will turn that appeal into a demonstration of the majesty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's a remarkable passage, and it's perfect for this Christmas day as we remember the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's read it together. We'll be this morning in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 11 to get a sense of the whole thing, though today our sermon will focus just on verses 5 through 8, and then next week we will cover verses 9 through 11. If you want to use one of the chair Bibles, you'll find this passage beginning on page 900. And 21. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul says this Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you join me with me in prayer? Father, we confess this morning that Jesus Christ, born for us, who grew up to die for us, and who rose again and ascended on high, we confess that he is Lord. And may this confession be to your glory. And as we work our way through this passage, may it glorify you and point us to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we have here a truly great passage that tells us so much about Jesus Christ, about who he was and what he did. But what we might forget in this passage is that this whole famous description of Jesus Christ flows out of a command given to Christians. The beginning of this passage that we're reading today is a command. It's the driving motivation behind why Paul wrote this passage And we find it right at the beginning. As we said, Paul has been exhorting the Philippian church toward unity. And we see this again in verse 5, where he says, Have this mind among yourselves. And this is a command given to all of them. All of you have this mind together. Be of one mind, he's saying. He tells them to think a certain way because he knows that how they think and how they believe will affect how they live and how they treat one another. Because what we believe about Jesus is not some ancillary thing to our lives. It's not trivial. It's not secondary. It is crucial. A right understanding of Jesus and of the good news of the gospel is not only essential to saving our souls, but to living together in harmony in the church. And people will ask, why do churches focus on what they believe so much? Why do they focus on doctrinal distinctives that could divide us as a people? Why not just focus on Jesus and have him bring us together? But as soon as you ask, well, who is Jesus? Then you're in the realm of doctrine. And so you have to clarify what you believe about Jesus. Two people can say that they both believe in Jesus, but they won't find unity in that if they believe vastly different things about Jesus. And so we must believe what we are taught in the Scriptures. And this passage is such an effective summary of those things. And in believing these things, we will find the grounds for Christian unity and for loving others. It causes us to ask that question, who was the child in the manger. Who was he? And if we get that right, that sets us on the right path for so many things, including obeying this command, have this mind among yourselves. But this is an exceptionally intimidating command. Is it not? He said, have this mind among yourselves, the ESV says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That second part could also be rendered which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I think that's the idea there. Paul is saying, your mind must be the same as Jesus's mind. And that's a lofty command to fulfill. This doesn't mean that we must be as smart as Jesus or as clever as Jesus or anything like that. What it means is that we can adopt his same mindset, his same attitude. We can be like him. We can resemble him beginning with how we think. I remember when my first child was born and she was very small and I took her out. I was picking up dinner 
somewhere at a teriyaki restaurant, I think, picking up dinner and bringing it home. And there was an elderly woman who was the proprietor of this restaurant, this establishment. And she came out and asked me if this was my baby. And I said, yes. And she said, I knew it. And then she said something I always remember. She said, in kind of broken English, she said, your face, her face, same face. And I said, oh, that's, that's flattering. Uh, so I'm glad about that. And Paul's saying that here. Your mindset, Jesus' mindset, should be same mindset. It should be the same. We can operate our lives from the animating principle of the gospel and let the person and work of Jesus Christ be the defining characteristic of how we consider and treat others. So Paul says, think this way. Think the way that Jesus did and think this way together. And he goes on to describe the work of Jesus Christ. Having told them to have the same attitude that was in Jesus, he elaborates. It's like he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Jesus. It's like someone stopped and said, wait a minute, who? Who was Jesus? And Paul says, oh, Let me tell you who Jesus was. And he begins there, look in verse 6, with this clause. And the ESV says, Who, though he was in the form of God. And the ESV translators there have added that word, though, to try to bring an interpretive sense to this. But a more straightforward rendering of this passage would just be being in the form of God. He said, have the mindset of Jesus who, being in the form of God, did all of these things that he goes on to say that, he, that being in the form of God, Jesus didn't hold on to that privilege, but gave it up. But does that clause, being in the form of God, should we read that as saying, although Jesus was in the form of God, he did all these things? Or should we read it as, because Jesus was in the form of God, he did all these things? You could take it either way. The ESV translators went with though, but we could take it as though. We could take it as because. And maybe that's the point that it can go both ways. We look at this as people and we say, look, Jesus existed as God in heaven for all eternity past. And in spite of that magnificence, even though he had all that magnificence, he chose to give it up to become one of us. I can't believe that he would do that. But I wonder if we would look at it differently, if we were more in line with the heart of God, maybe we would say something almost opposite of that, saying, look, Jesus existed as God in heaven for all eternity past. But because of that magnificence, he chose to give it all up to become one of us. And instead of saying, I can't believe he would do that, we would say, of course he would do that. Because he was in the very nature God. And this is what God does. Jesus from all eternity past always intended to become one of us to take a humble place, to die for us. He didn't have to be coaxed into it. He didn't have to be tricked into it. It was always in his nature. This is simply what the Son of God was always going to do. It is what he does. He becomes one of his people, and he lives and dies for them because God is love. So Jesus being in the form of God, of course he did these things. Of course he did. But to us, it seems unbelievable. We say, even though he was in the form of God, he did these things. But when it says there that Jesus existed in the form of God, who being in the form of God, it means that he was actually God. 
Right? Later in the passage, it says that he existed in the form of men or the likeness of men. But we know that Jesus was also actually a man. Jesus existing in the form of God and yet being equal to God, meaning God the Father, is the mystery of the Trinity. And you know, if you have kids, maybe you have discussed this with them. I've been discussing this off and on with my eight-year-old over the past, I don't know, months or years. Just this question, how can Jesus be God and pray to God? I said, that's a great question. And it tells us, and this is what I tell her, that we can't understand everything about God. The nature of God is beyond our existence. How can Jesus be God and yet be distinct from God? One God Three persons. It's incomprehensible. But we're told here that although Jesus was in the form of God, he was in the form of God, this meant that he had the same nature as God, that he shared in the same privileges as God, that he was worshipped in heaven by angels, that he existed in incomprehensible glory, but that in spite of that, or as we've said, perhaps because of that, he didn't think that he should hold on to that. He had something better to do. Sometimes similar things happen in our world. People, a person of great wealth and privilege gives that up for the benefit of others. Some may remember Pat Tillman, who had, he left his career in the NFL in 2002 to enlist in the armed forces, only to die in service of his country in 2004. A great sacrifice. Recently in the news, some people of wealth and privilege have made waves by choosing to give up at least some semblance of that wealth and privilege. Of course, in 2020, you had in England, Prince Harry stepping away from some of the British royal family to become financially independent. Or in September of this year, it was announced that the billionaire founder of the outdoor clothing company, Patagonia, was giving away all of his business profits to groups that were joining the fight against climate change and that his children and heirs were all personally in support of this, potentially lessening their own personal fortune. And so you can find examples of that out there, of someone of great wealth and privilege sacrificing some of that to try to help others. But there is simply no earthly comparison to the Son of God letting go of the rights and privileges of being God to inhabit the earth as a human. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That grasping means he didn't mean he didn't want to hold on to it for his own benefit. He wasn't keeping this for himself. It says instead, he took the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. And that's the great contrast there. He existed in the form of God, but he took the form of a human, and not just a human, but a servant human. The contrast here is so stark that Paul uses a somewhat shocking phrase there in verse 7. It says, he emptied himself, or he made himself nothing. To say that he emptied himself does not mean that he ceased to be God, but that he gave up all of that privilege as God. We sang it this morning, mild he lays his glory by. He set aside some of the active experiential uh, taking in of that glory. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In Charles Wesley's old hymn, And Can It Be, he uses the phrase that he emptied himself of all but love, which doesn't mean that he had no other attributes except love, but that it was his love for us that compelled him to become one of us so that he could die as one of us. 
being born in the likeness of men. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's quite the statement. That's one way to put it. Another way of saying that is this from Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Another way to put that is this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger." And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What happened on that first Christmas is just what Paul described in Philippians 2. The one who had existed as God for all eternity chose to be born as a human and not as a great earthly king, but as a servant. That's the point of the manger and the lack of room in the inn or the guest room or however you look at that. That Jesus was born either inside or just outside of a common peasant home. That nobody in the world recognized this. Nobody except the angels in heaven because they knew what was really happening. Nobody else could tell what was happening because it was so simple and so humble. The Son of God had come to be one of us. And not only that, not only had he come to be born as a man, he had come to die as a man. That's what Paul says next. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he says that even death on a cross, he's adding that because this is a shocking statement to them. We have sanitized the cross to the point of normalcy. We wear it on jewelry and on clothing and we put it on decorations and we erect a big giant one outside of our church and nobody thinks much of it. They don't say that's scandalous. They say that's what a church does. And there's a lot of good about those things. But we forget in all of that how scandalous it was for Jesus to die on a cross. We imagine a person from the first century somehow being transported to our day and seeing crosses everywhere, and they would be as horrified as we would be if we walked into a church and saw representations of electric chairs and mass graves and gas chambers. This is a statement meant to shock. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
a form of death that was so scandalous that you didn't even mention it in polite company in that day. A form of death that was forbidden for Roman citizens, inflicted only on slaves, rebels, and anarchists. And remember that the Philippians were very proud of their Roman citizenship. And one of the rights and privileges that granted to them was that they could not be crucified. So here is one even more humble than them, even of less estate than them because he was crucified. A scandalous death, but Jesus endured this shame for our benefit that we might be forgiven of our sins and given the hope of eternal life. Don't lose sight of this at Christmas time. The cross was the reason for the manger. Jesus was born so that he could die. Don't ever stop at Christmas. Keep following the plot line. Keep following the string out. Go to Good Friday and go to Easter and go to the Ascension because we need all of this. And it all flows forth from Jesus' birth into his death, into his resurrection, into his exaltation. It's a remarkable thing. That's why the rest of this passage, which we'll look at next week, speaks of how Jesus has been exalted, how he'll be praised for all eternity because of what he did. Jesus humbled himself as nobody ever has. He gave up more privilege than anyone has ever imagined. He suffered a humiliating, painful, and sin-bearing death, and he did this for us. And Paul's concern here is that the Philippians would get this story so deeply into the fiber of their being that it would become an essential part of who they were. Remember his command, stop fighting with each other, he was saying. Start getting along, be unified. And how were they to do that? By looking to Jesus Christ so intently that his mindset became their mindset. You can have the mind of Christ, Paul said, Just keep your focus on him. Christmas is a great time to ponder the mystery of the incarnation. It's one of the gifts of living in the world that we live in, is that there's a whole season and it's designed around, you know, winter and we're getting days darker, but they'll start getting longer soon uh, after the birth of Christ. Christmas is a wonderful time to ponder the mystery of the incarnation, to ponder those contrasts of glory and simplicity of heaven and earth, of thrones and stables, angels and shepherds, light and darkness, righteousness and sin, of word and flesh, of God and man. The Christmas story should never get old because the gospel should never get old. And Jesus should never get old to us. Philippians 2 should never get old. We should marvel at this passage forever so that we gladly confess Jesus as our Lord and follow him and so that his mindset becomes ours so that we begin to image him in our love for one another and our obedience to God. That's what Paul wants to have happen in the Philippians and that's what God wants in us. I was struck this week by the fourth verse of the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which coincidentally is not included in the version on Bob Dylan's album. But I thought maybe we could sing this together. I'm going to turn off my mic, all right? So I'm not singing on... And somebody just lead in here. Here we go. Let's cut this off.
job. Beautiful. A beautiful verse. I've noticed that a lot of versions change that fourth line from be born in us today to be born to us today. And I don't like it. I think that be born in us today is the original lyric, and I think it's better. Because Christ is born to you, whether you like it or not. The shepherds were told that before they knew anything about Jesus. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He has been born to you, whether you believe that or not. But has he been born in you? This is the prayer of this song. Be born in us today. That's for you to believe and to accept. Even kids that are here today. And we have some kids because we have no classes today. But kids, have you believed in Jesus as your Savior? When you're little, typically one of the first things you learn about Jesus is that he was the Christmas baby. And little kids can tell you that he was the Christmas baby. But kids, do you know that that's a great thing to learn, but you need to know more than that, that he grew up. And as you grow up, you learn that Jesus grew up to not just be the Christmas baby, but to become a man. And that he died for our sins and that we should believe in him to be saved. So have you done that? Kids, you're not too young. You could look back many years from now and say that Christmas 2022 is the year I really believed in Jesus as my Savior. That he died for my sins and rose again. And I believe in him. And I want to follow him. And that's really my prayer for everyone here this morning. That you would be able to see Jesus in a new and meaningful light that you might love him, serve him, live for him, and love others like he did. But it all starts with beholding him, looking at the one who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a glorious contrast that is worthy of our full consideration this Christmas. It's this magnificent message that grounds the whole book of Philippians, and it should ground our whole lives as well. Let's close by saying a prayer together. Would you stand up? I want to recite this collect from the book of Common Prayer together. Then we'll pray and sing one more song together, celebrating the coming of Christ and looking forward to his coming again. So say this with me. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born this day of a pure virgin. Grant that we, who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we might daily be renewed by the message of the gospel, that we would consider deeply the contrasts of Christmas and how Jesus Christ, God becoming man for our sake, for our salvation, ought to be the most important thing that we think about. It gives us life, and it will continue to give us life, not just as individuals, but as a church together. 
So God, impress these truths deep upon our hearts. And even this Christmas, would we have extra reason to celebrate the salvation that you have given to us through your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.